Welcome to Real Talk, Real Estate Discussions with Andrew Kirsch. In each episode, Andrew interviews industry leaders. We'll hear their real-time opinions on today's market, their background and unique career highlights, and guidance for newcomers into the industry. You can find this show at skalarkirsch.com and on YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Now here's the host of Real Talk, Andrew Kirsch. Episode 34 of Real Talk. Well, it's the official start of the fourth quarter now, um, now that we're in October. We'll see if we have the fourth quarter pickup in transactions like we typically do, um, but this is not a typical year. However, uh, at the end of the third quarter, uh, we had several closings. Um, industrial in Texas, multi in California, office in California, office in Indiana, uh, and some new deals that we just got put under contract, uh, several multifamily deals uh, and a retail deal. So there's still activity. Uh, industrial um, uh, is still strong. Uh, there's you know now some softness in multi where people are transacting. I don't think it's going to be a crazy year end like we typically have, but but things are opening up a bit. This week on Real Talk, I am so proud uh, and uh, excited to have my good friend, Giddy Cohen, uh, founder of CGI Plus, uh, come on to the show. We have uh, a really candid, open conversation uh, about him, his background, his upbringing, um, his company, his views on the market, his views uh, of the workplace. Um, it's really a, a a great conversation uh, that I had with Giddy that I hope you will enjoy. All right, welcome to another edition of Real Talk. We're doing something a little different. We're on location, five floors above where Sklar Kirsch resides. I am in the offices of Giddy Cohen, CGI Plus. Giddy, thanks for having me here and thanks for coming on to Real Talk. Thank you for having me on the Real Talk. Uh, this is a real honor. Uh, you know, uh, thinking about you coming on to the podcast and thinking about you know us and our friendship and working together i think you have been my longest standing client for at least well over 15 years and to see how much we've grown as people you've grown as a company i've grown as a law firm it's um it's just great just being here and and talking to you so thank you. Thank you. And I got to say that I, I enjoying our friendship, especially with you and Courtney and the kids. It means a lot to me. And I think it's nice to see you growing up. Business is business, but on a personal level, it's nice to see how far you and Courtney became become over the last 15 years. And, you know, I don't know if you remember, but when you work for, what was that? Rhyme in Rain Feldman. Rain Feldman you had a moment of like, am I going alone? Am I going single? Am I going to do it on my own? And I'm like, go, go, go. So obviously fortune favored the Braves and this is where you are today. So I'm very proud of you. I love it. And another first uh, on Real Talk is we're emulating Bill Maher and his club random with uh, a little bit of a beverage here. So appreciate that. <laughs> uh, L'chaim. So first, uh, Tell our audience, because I want to talk about you know, personal things and your growth and um, 
I'm sure my audience could tell from the accent that you're not American, that you're Israeli. Really? Can you maybe not? <laughs> there, there, you get you get a little American twang there. Um, but first, tell our audience what is CGI plus. Um, we're a private equity real estate investment firm. Um, we're focusing on multifamily. When we're dabbling in some extended stay. And for the most part, we're doing either a ground up or a value add. We're trying to be super selective on the type of asset we are buying. Um, I like to think of real estate as a long term. So we always, everything that we buy, we build, we try to think about at least we're owning it for 10 years and more. We're not much, much of a transactional office. We're more of a legacy assets and hand pick, cherry pick type of deals. Um, we don't want to do, we're not, we're not a volume shop. We have a lot of respect for the volume shops, but we're not a volume shop. And we like that boutique family style team um, type of um, type of an operation. Mm, and so, Very personal. Yeah. And so where, where are you guys transacting? Um, beside California, we have in the Southeast, mm. uh, Florida, Atlanta. Um, we've done some development project in New York. We've done about seven development, ground up development project for sale in New York. Um, we had some good experiences, some bad experiences. We've learned a lot and we decided New York is probably not that best place for us. So we're focusing on a sandbox that we are comfortable with. We have a shop in the Southeast. We have two acquisition guys in Atlanta um, and here in California. And so uh, give a sense of the size of deals, uh, vintage, um, you know, just a little more perspective on, on the types of, uh, properties that, that attract, that you're attracted to. Size of deals. We would like to be a minimum of, um, $20 million equity check. So between 20 to $50 million equity check. So we want to fly slightly out of the institution when it comes to the buying, um, vintage, we bought some 1920 in LA. So I wouldn't go that we, we're not a vintage oriented kind of a company, but we do like to buy a story. So if you have a good story in a 1920, like Villa Carlota, we'll buy it. Uh, we looked at 1917 Upland, we will buy it if the story is good. So I don't think that we are driven necessarily by vintage. Do you remember the first deal we worked on? Of course, Renaissance Walk. Even before Atlanta. that, even before that. Uh, isn't it we did the deal in uh, Brawley? Brawley. Yes, we bought a Northern Brawley, California. Brawley, California. That was it. Yes. <laughs> that was Tony Azzi was the broker and Sam Carp was the uh, note owner and I think that uh, IDB. Yes. Is, it was. I think it was IDB. IDB was the lender. Yeah. Yeah. And you bought the note. Um, we bought the note and we flipped the property six months later. Yeah. Less than six months because we had to pay that uh, uh, prepayment fees. Correct. <laughs> I remember, I remember, um, let's see, 2009, I've been a lawyer for almost 10 years, was working purely in institutional law firms uh, up until that point. And I had never met anyone like you uh, up until that point, right? <laughs> Uh, and even since then, no, I have, no, not, you know I have not met anyone <laughs> like you. Um, you are definitely a breath of fresh air to transact with. And I'm not just saying it as being on your side. I feel like the counterparties that you transact with feel like it's a breath of fresh air. That um, 
there's something about your style that is refreshing. It's not confrontational. It's matter of fact. It's never personal, but you're you are the most direct person I know, but in a non-personal way. Do I have you correct? Your perception is probably what's, what works. So if this is how you perceive me, so that would be correct for you. Um, you know, I like people. Like at the end of the day, we work with people. Yes, we transact with products, but we, at the end of the day, we work with people. And I really enjoy people. Um, and I think, I don't know if it's the Israeli in me or I don't know what it is in me, but it's just better to be totally transparent. And once you're totally transparent and you put it out there, you know, it's like in today's world, everybody's using nice words like vulnerability and being open and all that kind of nice words. For me, you just say what you think, you do what you say, you say what you do. And, and at the end of the day, if it doesn't work for the two people, it's okay. And if it works, it's great. So I always like to meet my buyer or seller, always taking meetings. Um, I just, I really enjoy people and I'm learning a lot. So that's maybe what you're seeing. Um, I don't know about the rest of it. I don't know if it's direct or not direct or non-confrontational because I think I can be all of the above. Uh, I don't, I prefer not, not to be confront, confronted, but if I am, I, it's fine. I mean, it's not the end of the world. But for the most part, I would like to conduct myself with good intentions. And the good intention is that, you know, just just deliver what you said. It's all good. Well, it's like the old saying is, you know, when you're dealing with someone from L.A., they'll talk about you, but behind your back. If you're dealing with a New Yorker, they'll talk about you, but to your face. And I feel like in dealing with you and seeing how you deal with counterparties, you're just ultimately direct and candid, but in a civil, professional, non-attacking way. And it, at least from my perspective, it has, it has proved to be in a very, not a strategy, because it is who you are, but it's very, um, it's a very successful way to, con to conduct ourselves. I, I tell my kids, I'm a, I'm a very, very proud father. The most important thing for me is, the product I'm most proud of is my kids. Be authentic and be yourself. It doesn't matter if you show weakness, if you show strength. It's okay. We all have weaknesses. We all have issues. We all have insecurities. Just be authentic. And when you sit with somebody on the other side that you feel they're not authentic, that's okay. It's not my place to change anybody. But if it comes to the deal and I feel like he's trying to, or they trying, whatever that person is, try, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, but smoking mirrors on, on playing games. So I always said, can we cut the shit? Yeah. Can we just do it? All right, so let's take you back to your uh, to your upbringing. You grew up in Israel. I grew up in Israel. I grew up um, as a farmer in the in the large. Uh, yeah, we, we had a really big ranch um, in in Israeli standards, like two thousand cattle and agriculture. So I, I grew... you were like Kevin Costner in Yellowstone. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> the work habits, yes. I'm not sure about the other side of it. It's pretty clean, very innocent. Um, so I grew up really, really close to the land. So there is something very grounding about this kind of an upbringing. upbringing. Um, and I think this is what we probably people see when it comes to authentic, because you, you just kind of like you're taking it the way it is, and, and it's just easier to communicate. 
Um, but I, I grew up um, waking up at four o'clock in the morning, work until 7.30, come home, change, go to school. Uh, and then come back from school, it's three o'clock and it's super hot where I grew up. So you take a nap until five and then you go to field again until seven o'clock at night. What part of Israel? North of Israel, like next to the Sea of Golan Heights, uh -huh. next to the Canaries. Uh -huh. um, and I really, really enjoyed working from a very young age. I never had an issue with waking up at 4.30 in the morning to go to work. Um, and also, I think when you grow and you work in a farm, there is something you're learning a lot about life. You know, they, there is, I don't know, in the Jewish holidays, there is Shavuot. And they said, when you plant the seeds, you cry. And when you harvest, you laugh. And and there is something about it to plant the seeds, to see things grow, or to see the calf of the cow, the cows, and you see them grow, and then you 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 harvest and you, you enjoy that different type of you cry then from 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 fear of what's gonna happen, and then you cry when you harvest because of the joy. So there is something very human about it that I really enjoyed. Um, and it was basic, um, middle class, up, middle to upper class. Um, my mom was very academic. Uh, so we had all this kind of a, some of a European flavor in the house from it. Um, but I, yeah, I was there until I was 18. And then, I mean, when you were a kid, did you have any aspirations of being in the real estate business, moving to the United States, having a corner office in Century City. I mean, was that even a thought? You know, um, n no, nothing to do with real estate, um, nothing to do with businessmen. There is a <laughs> few things that I always knew and I even tell my kids. I knew that I'm probably not going to be a good employee to anybody. So I knew that I have to run my own shop. That was from Have you ever been an employee? Maybe for a year or uh -huh. two. Okay. When I just got here. Yeah. But um, I, I'm, I'm just not good that way. I, I kind of like to create my own world, my own, my own destination. I don't want this to be an oversimplification or stereotype. Is that you specifically, or would you say that's Israelis in general? I don't know. I don't know if to answer that. I, I don't know. Uh -huh. I, I never really thought about it that way. Okay. Because I just see a commonality in at least the Israelis that are in LA in real estate. They have that same entrepreneurial spirit. I don't know if it's an Israeli versus foreigners. I think immigrate for the most part needs uh -huh. to create your own destiny because you have no other choice. Yeah. So, but if you look at Israel, I mean, I don't know what's the what's the percentage of employees versus none. Um, so I don't know if it's an Israeli or it's an immigrant thing. I mean, I, I know a lot of Asian, a lot, a lot of South American that's self-employed. Yeah. So I don't know. What um, tell tell me because obviously. In Israel, uh, you have to participate in the army, unlike yes. here. Uh, and so, what was, <clears throat> what was that like? The army or the decision to go to the army? Well, is there a decision to even go into the army? There is a decision of where to go. Of which? Where which unit you can select? So, which unit did you select? I was the equivalent to Israeli to American Navy SEAL in Israel. Uh -huh. They're calling a trade the Shloshes, okay. which is uh, yeah, frogmans. And how did you decide? So Navy SEALs, I mean, here are considered, you know, the best of the best. Uh, I grew up in the, in, the, in the village and in the area. So in Israel, you have kibbutz, you have Moshav, which is a, similar to here, Ventura County, and you have different kind of 
agriculture areas, and then there is the big city. And it was very well known that people from the kibbutz and the moshav are kind of a salt of the earth, earth. And those are usually the people who are going to a special forces units, different type, if it's whatever, Air Force, Green Beret, SEALs, equivalent to whatever we have here. So it was in part of our DNA. That's what we need to do for our country. That means that you're born in that moshav that everybody around you saying that you have to get yourself out of the comfort zone because you put the love of the country first. So there was no question that I had to go internally. That's how I felt to something that it's bigger than me. Now, why seal? It's, it's ironic because I had a lot of incidents in my life that I was literally sitting and reading. Nobody from my Moshav went to the seal because we didn't grow by the water. The Moshav was inland. Um, so nobody went to the seals. We had a lot of people say at Matkal, which is like Green Beret. Um, we had a couple of um, Air Force guys, but nobody went to the, the seals. And I was reading an article about how they're going in the age of 17 and they pre-select you because you're signing an 18. And when I read it, I was like, that sounds like a real hell of a challenge. And that sounds like a place that I can really bring some values. So I remember the time I was there with my first girlfriend. I was 16. We were sitting in her on a couch and I'm reading it. And I said, I think I'm going to do that. And she was like, sure you do. You know, and I was like, yeah, let's do it. And that was it. That's it. That's it. So it was a joke because in 18 months of training, um, you work hard, but I worked hard in a farm. It's not the same, but I, I, you know, you 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 you're kind of toughing it up in a farm. You don't have anyone trying to kill you in a farm. Well, you don't know my stepdad, but <laughs> <laughs> not killing you, but you know, it's like go go go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so every time when it was a little bit tough, I said, guys, it's okay. You don't want to go back to the farm. It's better here. Yeah. So that was always my internal joke. <laughs> so yeah, that was that was that was the motivation, and and then as you go, you see the type of people around you, and I was super lucky with um, it, it. Just just great guys, and you're learning brotherhood. You're learning commitment. You're learning what it means of watching each other's back. You're learning to be authentic. Um, there is something called um, a fuck up lineup. So during the day and training, the the officers, whoever runs it, is is every few minutes said, you know what, your shoelace are open, right as a fuck up. Um, you were supposed to touch the post, you didn't touch it, it's another fuck up. And at eleven o'clock at night, before everybody goes to sleep, you have a lineup, and each one of us has to say how many fuck ups he had that day. And every fuck up is a mile. The problem is that if you lie, and you catch and lie. You, you're being dismissed automatic. So, so it's, it's self, sir. It's like you are self uh, identifying your fuck ups. Yes. You're not ratting anyone else out. No, no, it's you and you only. Uh -huh. And it's about teaching integrity. Mm -hmm. Now, it's kind of a catch 22 because during the day, you're tired. It's not like you have a notepad. Hold right. on a second. Right, right. I'll have my assistant writing how many fucks <laughs> I have. So you run. It's like, hey, giddy, one. It's like, this is how it really goes. It's like, giddy, right up, one. Now, you, at the end of the day, you're tired, you're sweating it, you don't know what's going on. It's like, how the heck would I know how many fuck-ups I have? <laughs> so you always add one or two. But what people don't know that every fuck-up is a one-mile run. Right. And it's not just one-mile run, it's with a full gear, which is about 40 kilo. Later that, like at the end of the day? Or at when? the end of the training. 
I used to have a lot of fuck ups <laughs> and I'm not a good runner. So every night at the end of 11 hours, 11 PM, when everybody goes to sleep, everybody's supposed to, you have to run. So I usually run between five to 10 miles Jesus. every night. And I used to add two more just in case I missed one. Yeah. And wow, that gets you in shape. That's, but I'll tell you what it teach you. Uh, and this is why they're doing it. Because when you go on missions and you come back, you need to give what you call a case study. What went wrong? There is no what went right. It's what went wrong. And it's all about critiquing it. So I'm looking today on how we raise kids. It's like we're playing soccer. And if somebody got hurt, everybody's on their knees and they're waiting. And I'm like, seriously? It's like, what are you doing? So it teaches you to be super self-aware of where you're wrong. And it teaches you how to critique yourself and understand that criticism, it doesn't necessarily have to degrade you. It makes you better. And it also teaches you to be able to say, listen, my bad. It's one of the biggest issues that we have in the U.S. society because a lot of us would not admit that it's my bad. Now, my bad, it doesn't mean you're wrong for the rest of your life. It means today it's your bad, tomorrow it's a new day. There is a lot of growth. And maybe that goes back to what we talked originally about how I conduct yourself. Because it teaches you integrity and teach you to be transparent. It teaches you to be responsible and have an ownership of what you do. So there's so many things in character. It teaches you, teach you to work hard. It teaches you to be a team player. It just it teaches you all those values that carried you to the rest of your life. So you start in the farm and then it goes to the units. And by the time you're done with that, it just program in your head that way. Yeah. You can see a person and not understanding that you got to treat that person with respect, but still have your integrity up. So it sounds like things that you've learned um, in the Navy SEAL version uh, in Israel, you're using it maybe even subconsciously every day. It's def So when I'm hearing you saying it, I, I don't see using it. It's just of who you it's are. It's who you are. Yeah. It's like, it's it's like an athlete here or somebody that went to any kind of a super school that study mm -hmm. whatever so it's it just it's just built to who you are yeah. i don't think i don't wake up in the morning and think i gotta be that person this is how you wired now i know if it's okay to bring this up that you have your employees read a document or acknowledge a, a piece of paper of what it's like to work for an israeli Yes, that's true. So there was a study in that was done between the different societies around the world, how every culture run and operates. Um, in, in the U.S., when you ask somebody, how are you doing? He said, thank you. I'm doing great. If you ask in Israel, how are you doing? He will tell you how he's doing. <laughs> and sometimes we don't do great. So when now I can't help it. I've been now I've been more in America than in Israel, but until 20, the first my 23 years of my life, which identify your character, is it was in Israel. So for me, when I go in the office and I say to somebody, how are you doing? I really mean to ask them how they're doing. It's not just like brushing it by the right. hallway. Yeah. So and that's one. But it's another thing is if I come in and I say to somebody, you know what? You could have done that better. We can do it this way. The intention is not negative. Right. The delivery is different because it's a different culture. But the intentions are never to make anybody feel bad or degrading or any of it. I think my favorite one is just because I'm my voice is louder, it doesn't mean I'm yelling 
yes. at you or something. Yeah, just we all, yeah, we're very direct. <laughs> we we get excited. Yeah. I mean, if you see a bunch of Israelis sitting in the room, you think that we're screaming at each other. We don't. We're excited, passionate kind of. Listen, there is pro. I mean, there is good or bad about every culture, mm -hmm. and I'm sure we Israeli we have a fair share of negative just as much as we have a great things or positive. But um, we sit down in the room, and that's what we are. We louder a little bit, and we passionate, and and we hug. It's like kissing. We kiss each other twice on the cheek. If you go to France to to Dutch to the Holland, the Dutch people kissing three times. Mm. The Americans will do a handshake, <laughs> uh, which is. I mean, I'm not by any mean. I'm we was, we're sitting here with well, the American I was, flag. I was going to mention that. So, and we don't have to talk about Israeli-U.S. differences. And I want to get into more real estate, but I noticed the one of the few things in your office that's framed. And I do see an Israeli flag over there, but uh, is it the American flag? Why um, do you have the American flag so prominent in your office? I'm America's biggest fan. On, on all aspects, even the stuff that they're not as positive. Mm. I think America is a just, if, not just because of the opportunity that they gave me personally. I think America is just amazing country um, for so many reasons. But the biggest reason <clears throat> for me, it's a sense of pride that the American have in America, the patriotism, the hard work, they keep wanting to be the best all the time, the drive. Um, and... And for me, I want to be part of it. And I want to also, I was very fortunate coming here and, and able to achieve what I achieved. And it's not just because I am who I am. I think it's also because I had the platform here. America gave me the platform to be able to express myself. And the definition of sky is the limit is in America. And it's sitting across of my desk. And I want to remind myself every single day that, yes, I may be an Israeli descent, but I am in America. Is this flag historically significant? Other than it being an American flag, I could tell that it's an yes. older flag. What, yes. what is this flag? We bought it with a, some, without mentioning any names, we had some good artist that was carrying it and I find it and it's very vintage. Yeah. And yes. No, that's great. Do you think you could have built CGI plus in, I know you could have built it in Israel. Would you have been as successful? Like what, why? What is it in the United States that's different than Israel? I've been to Israel, obviously, not as much as you. I've been there multiple times. There's many Americans who want to move to Israel. It's a vibrant economy, uh, tech economy. Uh, <clears throat> why are you doing it here and not in Israel? You know, um, first, scale. Israel, it's an 8 million people. Yeah. It's the size of California. Cal so you mean, right. California is 30 million people. No, as far as landscape, landscape. as far as uh, geographically. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So you don't have the scale. So every time when I hear people going from here to Israel to build a business, I'm like, it's only 8 million customers. Right. It doesn't matter how you slice it. I mean, there is a cap. Mm -hmm. This is like why we're in the number one startup country, because it's so brainy out there and it's so advanced and thinking, but you can't scale those ideas. So if I'll be successful in Israel, first, we can get into the philosophical conversation of what success means, because for me, success is not just about money. Um, so if I'll be successful to build my family and have a great family in Israel and all this, absolutely. No question about it. If I'll be able to success to be at the same success as far as material and, and financially, I don't know. I mean, 
I would like to think that I'll be doing well everywhere I go just because of I have that grits and, and the hardworking. But I definitely think that America gives you a better chance to be successful than a lot of other countries. Mm-hmm. It's 360 million, it's a huge country, land of opportunities, rules and regulations are very, as much as we always complain here, still a very business friendly. Go and work, I'm building a house in Italy. Go and work and build a house in Italy. It's a nightmare. Hmm. I mean, and we think here there is an issue. So depends on how you see it. Yeah. Um, All right. So obviously this podcast is called Real Talk and it's real estate discussions. So. Oh, that's what the real talk is about. Yes. I thought it's the real talk. Oh, the, well, we can I have. I it's real talk. I, it is real. <laughs> for you, it's real talk or with you. We could go on for hours. I want to be mindful of and respectful for your time. Um, let's get into real estate. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, obviously you didn't end up with. Uh, this fantastic company with you know thousands of units throughout the, the United States. Tell uh, my audience, you know, how did you start? Uh, what were the beginnings of Giddy Cohen here in the U.S. and trying to make it into the real estate business? So I came here like every Israeli, and the first year, you know, I stumbled a couple of jobs without getting into it, and then uh, somebody introduced me to an Israeli guy that was looking for a construction supervisor for single family homes. That was 1992. Um, I worked. I kind of learned the trades a little bit. Um, and then we had the 94 earthquake. Um, if, if you remember, we had a lot of condemned building in San Fernando Valley. And somehow we stumbled. A Bank of America was looking to get a proposal on 24 units building on Woodman Boulevard. Woodman Avenue. Avenue? Yeah. Woodman, yeah. Across yeah, the street from sure. the Lebanese restaurant. Okay. I remember it. And the building was condemned. We had to do retrofitting. And I got friendly with the asset manager, and he came to me to ask to get proposal for it. And he said, why didn't you buy the building? And I was like, what do you mean buy the building? So we're selling it for 20,000 units. Now, I'm 25 years old. Real estate was not something that I went to school for or anything. So I was like, buy the building? Hold that thought. There was an Israeli guy that was teaching in UCLA by Jacob Siegel. Mm Mm-hmm. Sure. Amazing guy. Yeah. Just like amazing guy. I happen to know Jacob Siegel. So I called Jacob Siegel and I said, listen, I need a crash course in real estate. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you knew him from your days in Israel? Or no, I'm from just here. In the from US. here. Okay. So he said, I said, can I hire you private? I don't want to go to UCLA classes. <laughs> I, can I just hire you Nor privately? could you probably get in. Probably. I could not get in either. <laughs> um, so I said, Would I, can I hire you to give me private lessons? and anything to do in real estate. He said, what do you got? I said, this guy wants me to buy the building. And building was condemned, as I said. I remember it was 20000 a unit. It was $200,000 or something. And I'm like, you know what? I told the guy we're buying it, but I don't have the money, so you'll have to finance it for him. He said, let me see if we can get financing. Bank of America financed their things. I was giving 30% or 20% loan. I scrubbed a little bit, a couple of shekels, and I got it together, and I bought that building. Then he said, there is another building on Morrow Park, also 24 units. Would you want to buy it? I said, oh, so I didn't have any money. I went to Jacob Siegel. I said, well, you should, why don't you syndicate? Call your friends and family. So I called the friends and family. Um, at that time, there was another Israeli guy that was a broker. So he kind of taught me the trades. Um, and I remember closing on two, two buildings. And I said, okay, we need to manage. The first tenant came in and he called my office back then. He said, my speak to Giddy Cohen. He said, I'm your tenant. And I said, how can I help you? He said, the doorbell doesn't work. I said, hold the thought. 
I put him on hold. I called the other guy, the broker, and I said, didn't you say you're doing property management? He said, yes. Yeah. So you have a call. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not fixing doorbell. So, it, what did you think you were doing when you? I bought, had no clue. Yeah. I was 25 years old. Do it you was, remember the interest rates on those loans? I remember that I used to give a second trust deed uh -huh. for construction at 18%. So this is why we are going today, and this is why it's because some of the people. Yeah. I don't remember the first. What was the first? Yeah. I, if I'm not mistaken, it was in a seven, six, seven, eight. It ran that number, just like with same environment that we are today. Yeah. But I remember doing a lot of construction and home improvement. And if you have a $40,000 job, people can pay only 15. I said, no problem, I'll do a second position. So I used to get the cost out and give a second position. What I forgot to mention is that the company that I worked for, it, it became a really close friend of mine, Israeli guy. And after the earthquake, his wife said that the, she's moving out of California, she's going back to Israel. So he sold me that company. Mm. So I bought, I didn't have the cash. It was making installment and Mm -hmm. And so I bought that company in the construction. Um, and I know, well, so, uh, oh, as far as the interest rate. And um, so back then, I know that the second trustees went from 15 to 22. Mm -hmm. And we collect. And so from there, it was, it just, uh, how did you progress? So from there, I start to, obviously, through Jacob Siegel, which was mm -hmm. becoming good friends. So I started doing some fixer-uppers in a single-family home in South Central. Uh, I was doing a lot of construction. So I was running in three parallels. We had multifamily, single-family, construction for client, or fixer-uppers. Mm -hmm. um, and then in 1999, I was able to sell those 20,000 20, a door for 90 to 100. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I said, holy shit, that's how you make money in real estate. I was... 29, 28, and I understood the real estate. Okay, now I I, I went deeper with Jacob Siegel and I started learning 1031 exchange and how you're changing it, and the rest was history. Mm -hmm. So I knew I have to do two things. There is no cash flow in development or in, in real estate. It's very hard to get the amount of cash. So I ran a construction camp company parallel to um, real estate and to, to just bring in monthly income you're saying correct. was the construction correct company. you don't i mean it's yeah. very hard to get the amount of when you just started the yeah the, the cash flow that you need from real estate to cover your lifestyle i talk to clients people all the time about utilizing the syndication model for as in for investors versus the institutional model joint ventures, someone writing a check of, you know, 95% of the equity. Um, have what, what is there a preference? Do you have a preference of either model? Cause I know you've done both. Yes, I have preference. I think <clears throat> first has a lot to do with what type of shop you are. Mm -hmm. If you're a fee shop, it's one thing. If you're a transactional shop, it's another thing. But if you are long-term legacy asset, it's another thing. I always believe to buy the asset and not sell. If it was up to me, I would. I also think that IRR is not a good. It's not a good indication for real estate. I also think there is a conflict of interest with opening a fund with real estate. I think putting a, putting a five years window on real estate with IRR, it's it's like you're trading water because that, that's not how you should be. Mm -hmm. I think you should buy the asset, manage it right, create whatever value you have, refinance it. As the American way is borrow, buy, borrow, die. Yeah. And then, and then 
if you get an amazing price and you can get five or seven years in advanced money, sell it. Otherwise, why? <clears throat> I'll take cash flow any day of the week versus appreciation. Yeah. And, I mean, and so obviously these funds that are you know, large institutional funds that are all here in Century City, they have seven, 10 year investment uh, horizons where they have to sell after that time period because they have a fund life. So, and they also have an IRI criteria. Right. If I'm refinancing it, why do I need to sell it? Well, um, but how are you able to do larger deals or do you just expand your syndication network? So by, by now, the shop is big enough to be able to do all those three buckets. Mm -hmm. So we have a bucket for institution. We have a bucket for like family offices or long-term hold with a different structure. And then we have a bucket for development. So when you get to these things, so first the offices grew, have more people. So yes, we're enjoying some of the fees. But if you're asking my personal favorite, my personal taste to it, I would prefer to buy and hold. What was the transaction or moment in your career? And maybe it's when you sold the, you, the buildings on Woodman. But when was it where you were like, you know what? I've made it. I can now, I, I, I now know that this is not just a job. This is my career. I can provide for my family in a really comfortable way. So two things. You're asking two things. When did I decide I've made it? And then it's my job. Until now, I don't think I've made it. Ah, oh, come on now, Giddy. In my head, that's how it is because I don't know what's made it is. I'm happy. I'm I'm super happy with yeah. what I accomplished. Um, I I don't look at the empty glass. I'm I'm I'm, I'm very proud of what it is. But I don't. I'm I'm a guy that's always going to climb the next ridge. So for me, you get to a certain point, it's like, okay, what's next? There's something else to climb. Exactly. So, 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 and, and you know what? I like keeping it this way because mm -hmm. it keeps me dry. It keeps the drive. It keeps me hungry. So I'm still very hungry. I'm still very driven, still very passionate. So that's one. But for me, um, at 2001, I bought a piece of land uh, on a street called Huston in, in between Magnolia and Lancashire. Okay. In the valley. In mm -hmm. the valley. And it was a CRA project, um, and it was a historical project. I remember buying 12 bungalows. Mm -hmm. And when I look at those bungalows, CRA came and says historical. Everybody said historical. I look at it and say, it cannot be historical. They have different windows. They have different days. Something is up here that cannot be historical. I said, I'm buying it for $1.5 million. I used that with the buyer because the, buyer, the seller thought it's historical, which I was taking a chance, and I... I Back then, when you have nothing to lose, you can take more risk. Um, and I was, by right, if you can demolish those bungalows, you can build 35 units. I was able to, to prove that it's not historical. And I was able to get CRA to allow me to build 65 units. Mm. So I bought the land for one and a half. I put another half a million dollars in entitlement. And then a builder come to me and said, I'll give you $9 million. I was like, I'm out. And, I'm yet, out. and yet you were taught, you, two minutes ago, you said, don't ever sell. That's correct. Um, $7 million back then, um, for me only, um, not syndication with my mm -hmm. own money. Sure. It was a significant amount of money at that time yeah. that I'm like, yes. Just to refresh it, when I said no sale, it's like, it's not black and white. It's like, well, listen, we're not married to any of the properties. If there is enough profits that you sell, but there's a concept you need to buy and hold. 
and you know you're talking about a a 65 unit pr uh, project, mm -hmm. and now you're doing projects that are almost 10 times that, you know, 500 unit, yes. right? Um, so what, I guess, what are the differences and challenges of building a 50, 60 unit building versus one that's 10 times that? Before the challenges, it's a different mindset. Mm -hmm. When you build 525 units, you're building a community and beside the business, you all, at least me, I don't know about others. And by the way, I'm not an expert on to try to preach what everybody else should do. I'm just saying how I operate. Yeah. I look at it as I'm creating a community. I'm creating homes for people. I'm creating space for people to spend a lot of time. Different amenity, different lifestyles. So you're talking about the project we're doing in Torrance, 525 units. For me, I want to bring the urban quote-unquote vibration and, and style and vibe that you can build here in LA to the suburb because I believe that everybody should enjoy the same amenities. Everybody should enjoy the same lifestyle. The fact that you live in Torrance, it doesn't mean you should not be able to enjoy the same finishes, the same style. And mm -hmm. so, so for me, I, I enjoy it. I really like to sit down with the architect and my team will tell you, I sit down on every unit, every unit style, and every unit mix, and put together thoughts about how this thing should work. Um, so there is a difference. When you build the smallest one, you're making less impact on other people. So that's from the consumer point of view. For the business point of view, you're dealing with a different caliber of contractors. You're dealing with a different calibers of architects. So your knowledge and your, your depth of understanding the industry has to be different. It's a different conversation. It's a difference in renovation between doing a $10,000 bathroom remodeling versus building a $50 million home. It's just a little a, a different depth mm -hmm. of knowledge that you have to pull from. So is there now um, a minimum deal size that you must have before you look at a deal? There is personal and there is a uh, there is business. Mm -hmm. uh, on the business level, because we have the size of the company, so to do a transaction of a fifty units or thirty units, not because it's too small, it just it's 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 an opportunity cost. Right. It takes more man, the same amount of time to put together yep. thirty units. Yep, I say that all the time. Yeah. So yep. that's the only reason. It's not because it's beneath us or anything like that. It's just like. Not something that we want to put our time into. Yeah. So we try not to do anything in the city less than a hundred, but out of the city less than two hundred. Yeah. Um, so that's that's a difference for me at least. On the personal, on the personal, I love the property. I buy it. It can be it can be a dollar. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. Like if I, you know, I have my own personal books on top of the company. So if I see a site that I'm really liking. And I feel it's something I want to put in my trust and for my kids. And we're like, yeah, let's buy. So God, we could talk for hours here. And I definitely want to be respectful of your time. Um, last two more substantive questions. And then we're going into our lightning round. You know what our lightning round is? No. Like qu quick answers to, uh, to our questions, you know, so it's like lightning quick. All right. But I feel like the, these last two questions are going to require a little more in depth. Um, <clears throat> You've been through several cycles. You started your business in a, in a down market in 94 or even earlier in the you know, early 90s recession. 
there was 9-11, then the 08 recession, and now we're today. What are the differences, in your opinion, of what we're seeing today versus those other time periods? It's funny because the outcome is the same. The process is different. At 2008, you couldn't find lending. Now you can find lending, but it's expensive. So uh, in 2008, you also had issue with jobs and layoffs and on all kinds of things. Here now we have a job, a strong job market. I mean, there is a reason why they're calling it a rich man recession right now. You know, the workforce right now don't feel that recession the way um, the the wealthier people feeling it. Um, they they're targeting it differently. I always say that the the solution for every recession is the same from from a real estate point of view. It's leverage, it's the amount of leverage that you have, and it's the amount of liquidity that you have, and it's sustaining power. So the medicine to every recession is the same. Um, and I mean, you have a lot of people here that. Um, I'm talking within the multifamily because obviously the offices, it's a different story. It doesn't yeah. matter what was your leverage, you cannot sustain it anymore. So um, within the multifamily, I mean, for 2008, if you're able to write it out, you came out strong. Uh, in, in the 90s, if you're able to write it out, you came out strong. So I feel that the medicine for the multifamily. If you can sustain it, eventually it will be okay. But I feel that in the multifamily, we kind of borrowed future money. Rent escalation was out of proportion in the last few years. So if you really bought that pill of, of uh, appreciation that everybody else bought, I mean, there was an issue because it just didn't feel right. You can predict that kind of rent escalation. So in 2021, when rents were just skyrocketing, were, did you feel like at some point the music is going to stop and we got to protect our company and somehow we're not going to buy like there are companies of clients of ours and peers of yours that you know went all in as late as 2022 in phoenix and vegas and other markets and we see how they're hurting so a couple of things first we do have some pain within our company mm -hmm. so as much as i think i know it there is some pain sure i can tell you that we did not buy anything since july 2021. you have not bought anything nope. in over two years yes wow and I can tell you that um, without mentioning names, we had consultants, we had people coming, we had guests in our IC meetings, and they all said, you're going to lose your acquisition team. Mm -hmm. And I said, I don't want to lose my acquisition team because I have a phenomenal team. Yep. But I would not buy against something that I feel that I should not. So one of the biggest arguments we had in IC meeting every Thursday was are, they try to sell me on the rent escalation. But everybody else in the market is doing it. I said, guys, I respect everybody else and I might be wrong. I'm not comfortable with that kind of rent. I'm just not comfortable. I'm not buying it. So we did not buy any deal since 2021. <laughs> and I, it was a lot of tough conversations. Sometimes the best deals that you buy are the ones that you don't buy. Yes, but listen, there are people, we have a lot of mutual friends that made money at 2022. So I don't know if I'm right or wrong. I just know that for yeah. me, it did not make sense. Something did not smell right. Yeah. It's the same thing in 2006. I sold everything I own. Everything I own because for me, I, I look at indication of, 
of what other people buy. And when I see what other people buy and I feel that it doesn't feel with my thesis, and I'm not, again, I'm not saying that I'm always right. It just, you, at the end of the day, you have to go with your belief system. If it's right or wrong, it doesn't matter. You got to stick to your own belief system. So when, when I saw in 2006 that I feel like something is up, it doesn't feel right. There's something from the street, it doesn't feel right. So I said, sell it all and let's see what happened. And that's what happened. We took a two years off. I didn't buy anything from 2006 until 2009. Mm -hmm. uh, and we started buying again in 2009. Wow. I got lucky. I, I, I sold all that condors. I bought a lot of Burger King, all cash. And I said, I'll sit on it, see what happened. Uh, obviously, it was a much smaller portfolio that we have now. So when I look at 2002, the mistake that I have done, I didn't sell enough. I should have sold more. Like my gut told me, don't buy. But somehow it didn't register to my brain telling me sell. sell. Yeah. Um, so that's what happened. But we did not buy anything since 2021. So here, September of 2023, how have you positioned the company to to you know transact and 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 take advantage of what we may see in the next 12, 18, 24 months? So in the army, there is something that called the drawer plan. The drawer? Yeah. Okay. It's a plan that you put in the drawer. Okay. Now, I have an Israeli CFO and partner, Sion. Yeah. Fantastic guy. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, and him and I have a strategy that we always said, in the event of these things would happen, you take the defense, I take the offense. So we're splitting the company into half. Because when everybody in the offense, you lose opportunity. When everybody on the defense, you lose whatever you own. So that's what we do. So Sion did a fantastic job of hedging the offense. We still have some issues. You know, they have a couple of deals that we're supposed to break ground. We're not going to break ground. Yeah. We're going to bleed. We're going to pay. We're going to do some capital calls. We're going to work it. But for the most part, 80% of the portfolio is solid. Um, now, how long? Who knows? I mean, we, we have interest rate locked for at least four to five years. So we're good with that with some of the project. But who knows how long these things? And I'm not going to be just sitting here telling you that I think I know. But one thing that we do see is we start seeing some really good assets to buy. So we just came back from road trips and um, road shows and, and we're raising money. And, and we are spending, and, and everybody knows that most of the institutions sitting on the sideline um, for one reason or another. And we have high net with individuals. We say, listen, let's buy asset with a 10 years horizon, but let's, let's get a really good, trophy assets on the books. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're doing. So um, Andre Cerruti is a super talented guy and um, Mark Cohen with our team and Cody Walker. I mean, they're all great guys in our acquisition team. And we have not bought anything. We're under contract for one deal now, but we're looking for good real estate and good opportunities. Yeah. Well, there is one deal that you did do in the last two years, which is I was an investor in it. Um, Lazy Acre. Lazy when Acre. was that? When did, no. What did we close it? Nope. Oh, you did close it before then. You're right, because it was the middle of the COVID. That's and, right. Uh, nope. We closed it three years ago. Yeah. I've never been to a grand opening of a supermarket before. Neither do I. We had a great time. Neither do I. We had a great time and had a great closing dinner at Dantana's yeah. with our good friend Blake. And yeah. uh, we'll have to do more of that. I would love that. Uh, all right. Last questions here. Quick answers to, to these questions, okay? Don't mean to put you on the spot, but I'm going to. Do you use, do you personally use Excel? No. So how do you evaluate a deal? <laughs> Napkin, pencil. I look at the Excel 
and I make my own decision. Mm-hmm. I, 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 the Excel for me is a storyteller. Yeah. I got to tell I, this, this, I don't look at the Excel formula. I look at the Excel storytelling and then I see if I buy it. Yeah. If I buy it, I can sell it. Sure. Um, what are the qualities that you look for when you are hiring someone? <clears throat> Depends for which position. Um, first, to be honest today, I don't do most of the hiring. Okay. Um, but in a C-level position, we're looking for people that will have a similar DNA that we have, the similar values. Um, and then and then they have to have the talent and, and the know-how of that trade. So they need to have some experience. But for me, for C-level, so you need to have at least five or seven years experience. But most important things, I want to know that I like the person. And I want, listen, it's not a big shop. So if you and I work together, we got, we got to enjoy each other's time. I, I don't care how talented you are. If you and I don't vibe for whatever reason, and I'm going to spend time with you, it's going to be fun. How long does it take you to figure out if you can vibe with someone? So I have a very long um, dating process before uh, I hire. Yes. Mm-hmm. So we have the first interview, which whatever you do, you meet. Um, then I'll do lunch. <laughs> then I'll do dinner. Then I'll go for a hike. I like literally spend time with that person three or four times. I, I, I just want to kind of flip them like a burger to see what's going on. It's like, <laughs> flip them like a burger. You know, it's like I want to see. And, and I want, by the way, I'm hoping that they do the same thing for me because they got to interview me as much as I interview them. Yeah. And wherever we hire, we hope that it's going to be long term. But we're all suffering from a high turnover. I mean, we I suffer from a high turnover. You know, most of our developers, we're not like the easiest guy to get along with. Yeah. And we are very crazy and whatever we are. So you got to make sure that somebody understand that culture. Um, I know you're a world traveler. Yes. I know you've invited me on some of these trips, Marrakesh. And I see the books in front in your lobby, Brazil and Peru. Best place you've ever been to? Morocco. Hands down, huh? Hands down. 25 times in my life, I'll go there. 25 times? Yes. You don't get sick of it. It's a small country. I went to Morocco first time in my honeymoon, 1995. Oh where God. nobody was going to go. Yeah. Morocco is by far my first my first place. Second thing is Peru. Peru. It's like everyone's going to Portugal right now. I great country to go. Yeah. No, I, I'm more of a third third world country yeah. kind of guy. Yeah. Uh, yes, I do Europe and all this kind of stuff, but I, okay. I enjoy that. The third one will be Japan. Okay. I better take Courtney to, to Morocco. Uh, not without me. <laughs> we'll go. Uh, no, you don't go to Morocco without me. We uh, got to do it together. I love it. Yeah. Last question. Uh-huh. What advice would you give a Giddy Cohen who's 25 years old, who's walking into your office and says, all right, how, how can I make it in the real estate industry? 25 years old. Do it your way. Don't, it doesn't matter what everybody says. Do it your way because we're all very unique and individual and what works for you, it doesn't mean, yes, get advice from everybody you want to learn, but don't try to be somebody else. I'd rather be doing not as half successful as other somebody else, but do it your way because the joy that you're getting out of it and the fulfillment for do it your way, it's much greater to try to be somebody else. Mm-hmm. And if your way is not perfect, it's fine. Yep. Nobody's perfect. No, it's great, great words of advice. Giddy, we could go on forever. Um, all I know is that for the 15 years that you've been in my life, it's been so impactful, not just for me, but my whole family. You are the only, I would say one of the only, if not the only person that when I say to Courtney, my wife, uh, 
Giddy's invited us uh, to go to dinner tonight. She'll say, let's get the babysitter, canceling whatever we do. We're not going to act American and need to have plans <laughs> four months in advance. We're going spur of the moment. And so thank you for making me and Courtney eh, be a little less American and more, uh, you know, think on our feet and just uh, to say it back, I got to say Thank you for Courtney for two things. First, accepting me for being who I am. Not everybody <laughs> does. And B, um, you're a real mensch. Just hands down real mensch. And I I have so much respect and love for you for doing it. And 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 Courtney is just a doll. I mean, I love Courtney. Well, thank you. So, you know, I mean, she's fantastic. So I I I'm just as grateful as you are. Well, I appreciate it. Look, much success, even though you've had tons of success. I know you guys will continue to crush it. Thank you for coming on to the show. and uh, so coming to my office. What are you talking about? Thank you for coming here. I, I love it. <laughs> I'll just stay here and drink more tequila. All right, man. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. You've been listening to Real Talk, Real Estate Discussions with Andrew Kirsch. You can catch prior episodes at scalarkirsch.com and on YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Thank you for your positive reviews, comments, and for sharing the show with others.